Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We talk on this program about several themes. One is race. Another is the failure of journalism. Another is our moment of uh, democratic threat that is posed by a party that has given up on democracy, that has given up on objective reality. And rarely do we have a way of kind of tying all of those disparate trends together. And in fact, there is a way in which they connect. And our guest today has done more than any other person I'm aware to understand how race, how the mainstream media, how history, how democracy are interacting at this specific moment in time. And let's be honest, we are at an absolute danger point. We are 13 months away from an election in which the guy who tried to overthrow the last election is going to be on the ballot and could possibly win. When we say it out loud, I still find it mind-boggling that we could be in this position, but that is true. We're in a position where one party has given up on governance, has given up on trying to be responsive to the voters. And so we are really at a precarious point. And unfortunately, our government uh, and even Democrats um, don't seem to be fully aware of the threat. And worse, the mainstream media does not and is, I would argue, compounding the problem with a false sense of objectivity, a false sense of balance, a feigned refusal to understand what Trump and his movement is all about. So I think the person to help us make sense of this um, is the author of the 1619 Project, the really groundbreaking work um, that took us back to the origins of America long before 1776 and really traces the way in which race has always defined America, its high points, its low points, and um, how we come to terms with our past, which is really a monumental question that is more appropriate now than ever. So I'm delighted to have on the program, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And uh, without further ado, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. Your 1619 was really a, I think, historic breakthrough um, in both um, history and in political debate. Um, but today, I specifically want to focus on the Hulu series that grew out of that work. Why did you decide to do a TV series, and who was your intended audience? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm i a print journalist. I've been a print journalist my entire career and really don't even think um, in the TV or documentary format. But when the project came out, we were actually contacted by some studios that were interested in in turning the project into um, film or TV. Um, and it made sense to me because I'm, I'm an avid documentary uh, watcher myself. Uh, some of the earliest memories with my dad, we loved watching documentaries on television. And so you just, of course, understand the power of the medium and yeah. that um, there are many, many people who will never read thousands of words, long essays, um, but who do want information and who will engage with that medium. So that's ultimately why we decided to go with the documentary and really the audiences, uh, anyone 
but mostly I was thinking about my family back home um, and how would they receive this information? What would be the best format? And I think television is just very uh, democratizing. And I, I do want to talk about kind of the, the style that you took. Um, you had four different subjects, but it was very personal. You had members of your family. Um, it was, um, on one hand, a small frame, and on the other hand, this huge frame. Was that just necessary, you think, for TV? Or do you think for a wide audience, personalizing history in that way is really effective? Yeah, I, you know... Part of the inspiration for that was how we did the 1619 podcast, where uh, as we were creating this narrative podcast uh, about very kind of disparate subjects, all being connected, of course, through the legacy of slavery, but talking about very different aspects of American life, how do you kind of create a connective tissue uh, between all of the episodes where you're going to meet different people in different regions of the country. And so in some ways it kind of made sense, um, much like the podcast, to make my family story uh, the, the tissue that connected all of the episodes of, of the project. And really understanding that because of um, the way race has worked in America, because of the legacy of slavery, because of the legacy of, of legal discrimination, on the Black experience in many ways, uh, it's, it's a singular experience um, where, of course, we are all individuals, but our experience is very collective. And so I could tell my family story, and that would actually be the story of most Black Americans uh, in some way. And I think as a storyteller, we always know um, that when you're trying to um, exemplify and and shine a light on these very big issues um, that you have to make them personal. And I've always right. felt that history is very personal, that, that every person's life is being shaped by these vast histories that we um, haven't necessarily even taken part in, in ourselves. Um, and so that's kind of the way, as a journalist, I've always seen history. And then this, of course, was micro, micro down to my own family. Did you have a trouble convincing them to do this? Did they resist and say, no, 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 not us? You know, I, I didn't. And actually, the, the biggest trouble was convincing me. <laughs> um, the producers, you know, really believed that this was the best way to help people get into the episodes. Um, but I was reticent because... Uh, having been uh, kind of in the eye of the storm for so long and understanding, uh, as you know, of course, the type of attacks that one can receive. Um, I I wasn't excited to expose my family to that. Sure. Um, and so it did take some convincing. And I did, you know, my family was actually very excited to take part in it, but I wanted to, each of them have conversations about what that could mean. And, you know, it's one thing um, to talk to me about things. It's another thing to have your story out to the world and, and just want people are just mean, but also people have been very ugly around the 1619 project um, sure. specifically. But, um, you know, once I had that conversation and we talked it through and they were still willing to do it uh, in some ways, you know, it was just asking my family to do what I ask people to do as a journalist all the time. 
It really is. Um, and we just expect people to talk to us all the time when it's your own relatives and friends. You say, gosh, why does anyone ever talk to me? I can't. Exactly. It's really <laughs> rather amazing. Um, you know, um, there is so much disinformation, so much suspicion, so much um, negative information coming through that I think one of the things your family helped to do was ground it in a specific reality. It's one thing for people to say, well, maybe this happened in a few instances or it never happened. And it's another when you're confronted with the people whose lives exemplify these themes that you've hit over and over again. And I'm sure you must have had people come up to you on the street or email you, write letters, what have you, that said, that's my family. Yes. Um, was that sort of the reaction that you got? Absolutely. I mean, that that really is the power of, of what journalism can do at its best is we tend to talk about uh, history or uh, inequality or systemic injustice. And it, it all seems a bit of an abstraction to people, right? Um, and when you're able to connect that down to an individual person and hear that person's stories and then use that person's story to connect these larger uh, dots together, I think that's very powerful. So I've heard... Um, from so many people, particularly the interview uh, with my cousin Shamir in the capitalism episode, where, you know, she's, this is a, a woman who's been working since she was 15 years old and who uh, really breaks down in that episode uh, crying because it's, it's during the pandemic when she's laid off from her job and she's getting stimulus money um, that she made the most money she's ever made in her life. Right. Uh, a 40 year old woman who's worked since she was 15, supporting her children. And it's only during the pandemic. And, and I think we all kind of uh, people who come up to me say like the power of, of hearing that um, and realizing that we as a country have the ability to help struggling people. Uh, we just don't choose it. And she says in that, right. you know, when she's crying, she says, People had to die so that I could like live the best I've ever lived and how personally devastating that truth was to her, which I think is a real uh, uh, damning truth for our entire country. So, yes, people really connected with those those personal stories. And, and funnily, um, people also. I think I think the series humanized me in an odd way, <laughs> right? Is, How so? Uh, How so? Well, you know, I I've for a certain group of people, I've become this boogie woman, um, right? Right, and um, people think all types of things about me, having never met me, having never had a discussion with me, and, and you see where I grew up. You see, you know, the humble right. house in the red line neighborhood that. Um, my mom still lives in. You you see the, the the extremely working class family that I came from, and you see me with my loved ones. And and I think that I, I actually got uh, emails from people saying this completely changed the way that I that I have thought about you too, because you get turned into a caricature, but but you're not. You're a full human being. Um, and and the documentary helped show that. That's, that is so powerful. Now, this comes at a time where many states are going through a process of stripping out history, of presenting some kind of 
Swiss cheese would be too mm. fair because a block of Swiss cheese at least has cohesion and at least um, is a visible form. And whether it takes the point of view of um, textbooks that are being um, misused or rewritten or book bans or um, gag orders on gag rules for teachers, I never thought in my lifetime I would see that in American schools. It is so indicative of a totalitarian mindset that they want to control history. Give me your take on why they're doing it and why there is an almost desperation to rewrite the history of the United States. You know, um, there are probably not a lot of people who have thought uh, more about this in the last few years than I have. Um, right. And um, I've also had that question, like, what what is it about this particular moment? You know, there's, uh, you know, federal bills that were introduced to um, strip funds from schools that would teach the 1619 Project. Like, to me, Right. That a work of journalism, a single work of journalism would be the target of federal and state legislation uh, is is astounding. Like you cannot, you are prohibited from teaching the 1619 Project in Florida, but you can give lessons from PragerU. Um, so I think, you know, what we're, what we're seeing, and I've, I've read a lot of writers who study authoritarianism, you know, Jason Stanley, Tim Snyder, uh, right. Ruth Giat, to try to contextualize this moment. Because yes. I, I think it's challenging for us as Americans, even, you know, someone who studies our our history and knows we, we have often struggled with democracy in this country, to, to realize that what we're seeing are things that we would easily condemn in other countries. And somehow here we we think they're not as dangerous, and and I think what we're seeing are, are two things, um, really a convergence of a a uh, extreme demographic anxiety as yes. our country becomes uh, more racially diverse, and I think it it really begins to speed up with the election of Barack Obama, where um, you no longer need a white majority uh, to put a you can get a black man in the White House without a majority of white people voting for him. I think for a certain section of the United States, um, that was extremely uh, frightening. Um, and this idea that then you are you are losing something as you lose demographic supremacy, and then you kind of um, join that with what happens after. 2020 with the racial justice uh, protests over George Floyd. And all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing this this societal shift in uh, Confederate monuments are being torn down, right? All of these things that we had kind of accepted um, were being challenged. And this idea that the histories we've been taught, um, the people we have been taught to valorize in our histories, this, these were all being challenged at this type, time of great uh demographic angst. And that I think is proven to be a very dangerous combination. And people who study authoritarianism um, often cite those, those, those elements. And you know what what I've realized is um, one, we, we know history has always been powerful. As I as I talk about the 1619 project, you know, what we call history is really memory because all the things that happened, happened. But 
our our kind of collective understanding of the past and therefore of who we are as a nation is is shaped and it's it's long been shaped by just one group of people and now there is a the power of other people to be shaping uh, that memory. And I think that's very frightening to people who have long kind of uh, had the monopoly on the American story. So that's where we're seeing, you know, these these efforts to ban, to restrict. It's a complex answer, but Republicans um, had an opportunity, I think, really after George W. Bush, when they kind of decided we can't be this all white party. Right. And for a while, it looked like they were going to court, you know, the Latino vote and they were going to try to to embrace kind of the, the wider uh, demography of the United States. Um, and then they veered away from that after uh, Obama and they cannot win elections yes. as a whites only party. And so there's so much fear wrapped up in that, that they they feel the only way to win is to racially polarize our society. And race right. is the oldest wedge issue in America. So you go from, you know, the protests of 2020 and this racial reckoning, and now we're in a racist reckoning. And people who can make a better argument, make one. People who don't yep. think they can make a better argument, try to stop you uh, from making yours. things really strike me um, at this moment. One is the degree to which the people who are behind these measures want to preserve this myth of white innocence. When they use the phrase, we don't want any of our children to feel uncomfortable. I always thought the point of education was to tell you something you didn't know and expand your horizons. But the notion that, first of all, African-American children who are excluded, their feelings are completely irrelevant, of course. Um, but that we have to preserve this pristine, mythological view of America speaks so intently to their unwillingness to understand the long-term implications and then their own responsibility for fixing it. Talk to us a little bit about how the denial of history kind of works in with this complementary um, view, which is there's no systemic racism in America. There's no institutional racism. It doesn't exist. How do those two things come together? Um, and what's the purpose behind them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's a reason why uh, these campaigns target schools. And they target schools because people get very emotional about children. Right. And it's an area of life that uh, we all have to turn over our most precious uh, possessions to and we can't be there with them. Right. right. Um, and so culture, quote unquote, culture wars are often fought around the idea that somehow our children are being harmed. And it's very effective because then we don't use our mind. Um we, it plays to our fears. So I'm not surprised to see this happening in that way. But it also is about more than that, right? Because there is a sense that um, 
somehow if we are honest about our past, this entire idea of America would just evaporate, right? You see the language. They're like, well, if they learn this past, it's going to teach them to hate America. Well, what is that saying about how, right. how you think about this past? Um, and instead, I think, you know, yes, there, there are many, many horrific things that the United States has done and that have happened in the past. But by teaching them, um, it's not condemning the United States, but it's saying we can do better. So if we know that, if we learn from that, if we confront that, then we can actually choose to have a different society than what we have. But again, I think why would people who largely see themselves as the beneficiaries of that mythology want to see that mythology challenged? Because there's a fear, you know, so again, I, I was looking at data from 2020. And at the height of those uh, George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, almost half of conservatives uh, were saying that they thought race was a primary obstacle for Black Americans' advancement. That was an astounding figure to me, right? right. Because that's not typically a conservative ideology, is, is that right. something systemic is holding Black people back. And yet almost half... Um, seven out of 10 Americans had had a conversation in their house about race. The protests, as you know, were happening in small conservative white towns and big uh, multiracial cities. Um, and I think that that really unsettled um, people whose vision of America is that America was never meant to be truly a multiracial democracy. And I think right. people saw that as uh, people of color ascending. Um, and instead of that meaning, maybe we can find equality, that had to mean that they were that they were losing something. Um, right. And that's where these whole ideas of replacement theories, which, you know, um, racially moderate, moderate people won't call it replacement theory, but that still is that anxiety that's being tapped into. Right. So when we don't want to be honest about the past, um, then it allows us, I think, to accept the inequality that we see in the present. Because right. if you acknowledge that the reason Black Americans are on the bottom of every indicator of well-being is because we have, you know, 350 years of legalized uh, discrimination, segregation, and slavery, and that perhaps that has something to do with it, um, then you actually have to uh, do something as a society to remedy that. And instead, we would prefer to say we're all equal now. Uh, there were a few blemishes in the past, but everyone is responsible for his or her own life. And I say all the time, narrative drives policy. It's not, as you know, one of the most incredibly frustrating things uh, for journalists or just rational thinkers is that data, research, you know, uh, proven science, none of that is what drives policy. It's narrative. It's how do, can you get people to think about this issue and why we must solve it in a certain way? Um, and so what that's why we come down to in this moment fights over narrative because the facts are the facts. Um, but the fights over narrative will determine ultimately kind of what policies uh, we accept and uh, what politicians um, will control the nation. Absolutely. And one of the things I think I've experienced over the last, you know, five years or so is an appreciation for how badly we have been educated. I think of myself as an educated person. I went through public schools. I went through college. I went through law school. And how did I never 
learn about the Tulsa race massacres? How did I never hear about the Osage Indians? You realize that what you have been given is such a sliver of reality. Um, it, I think, should make us angry that we've been misinformed, miseducated. But obviously, this poses a great threat to many white Americans. And what is so unbelievable to me is when you look at some of these surveys um, that white Christian conservatives will say that the real victims in yes. America are white or Christians. They have to be the victim somehow because that, I don't know, justifies what they're doing or that uh, means that nothing has to change. This claim to victimization from a group of people who used to be in favor of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not blaming anybody else for your travails, is just mind-boggling. Um, has the extent of this gotten worse over time, or has it always been there, where whites somehow feel like they're, you know, victims, or, you know, any effort to change the status quo, oh, you know, now you're discriminating against white people, any effort for judicial reform, any effort for bail reform, suddenly they're the put-upon group. Um, how, how do you explain that or how do we understand that? Yeah, you, I think that that's a long uh, tradition in America, actually. So uh, I, I think it, it's it's been fascinating to watch how quickly the, the people who were calling everyone on the left snowflakes are the ones who passed, you know, divisive concept laws where little Johnny can't feel any discomfort in the classroom. We have to protect uh, our children from any discomfort, uh, which I actually think, you know, learning about the ugly past makes us empathetic people, right? Um, and that we should feel uncomfortable with, with things that uh, have been done in the past, whether by our country or not. Um, but I think that what you're really seeing is a long history. I, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now for the New York Times Magazine, kind of uh, a obit, one might say, to affirmative action. And going all the way back to the period of the Freedmen's Bureau and looking right. at how, you know, during slavery, white Southerners uh, posited themselves as the oppressed group, right? Wow. That um, we are being put upon and people want to force us to conform to their ideology and their lifestyles. And we're actually oppressed. This happens right after the end of slavery, right? That any efforts to kind of help 4 million people who had just been released from 250 years of bondage was unfair to white people. Uh, you certainly saw that during the civil rights movement that um, black equality was seen as actually taking away the rights of white Americans and that white Americans were... Um, were losing something as Black people were gaining rights of citizenship. I mean, frankly, uh, you could go back and read how George Washington, um, when he was writing letters trying to convince other uh, colonists to join the revolution, was saying, you know, the British want to make us their slaves. They want to treat us like we treat our Black slaves, right? <laughs> we're the real victims here. So I right. think there has long been kind of that streak Um but I think we are in a particular moment where, at least um, in much more recent history, it, it is much more profound and being used um, in ways that I don't think we've seen since the civil rights movement, right? Like this this try, trying to nullify court rulings, this idea that maybe we actually don't believe in democracy because 
we can't win in a democracy. Um, and that weaponization of um, uh, people who are still the largest racial group in the United States uh, now feeling like they are an oppressed minority. And frankly, where that comes from is this longstanding fear that if white Americans lose power, um, people of color will do to them what white Americans like, had done, done to them people of color. And there, that is really uh, a fear that is driving this, even though there's actually no, um, there, there's, there's nothing in history that tells us that that is what would happen. Um, right. So I think that that, it, it's not new what it is that right. we're seeing. And, but That's what it is, is, is it's, it's dangerous. Um, yes. Because when people feel cornered, right, um, that's where we see the chaos that we see now, where right. there's people, you know, there's sitting, uh, people sitting in the House of Representatives who are calling for civil war, who are, you know, it's like, we have been here before, um, yes. and it's a very dangerous place. I know I don't have to tell you that. Yeah. I just think it's also important to say, you know, nobody wants to be the bad guy in the story. I get that. Right. And when you've spent your entire life learning a very one-sided history that every hero um, is always a white person and uh, all that story does is to exist, uh, exists to glorify white people, um, I can only imagine uh, how that feels to feel like those tables are being turned and that that's being contested and that you're no longer seen as uh, the hero in the story or the sole hero in the story. But I also think it's important to say, you know, my work and the work that my work is based upon is never arguing that white people today are responsible for what white people right. in the past did. Um, but we are responsible for acknowledging that and owning up to it and and trying to rectify it. And, you know, we only see this this desire not to be connected to uh, our ancestors uh, when it's negative, right? Because right. no one seems to have a problem with like their ancestor also didn't sign the Declaration of Independence, right? And their ancestor also didn't ratify the Constitution. And yet we want to claim that part of our collective history and just not the ugly parts. But it, it's not about kind of a collective guilt, but it is saying um, that we have kind of, we do have a collective shame and it's okay because hopefully that yes. means we know that Collectively, um, we have an obligation to address the past, but we're not we're, we we don't bear responsibility for it. And this has been so hammered home with this notion of American exceptionalism, America's the shining city on the hill, that a sense that that might not be true is devastating <laughs> for many people. Um, so you know, reality is you know somewhat upsetting. Before we turn to journalism, which I really want to talk to you about, given my frustration, exasperation, anger at what is happening in journalism these days, let me ask you a very basic question. I think about 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump. And whether you believe the polls or not, there are still millions upon millions of people who support him. I find that horrifying and greatly depressing. Uh, 
What do you do with that? What do you, how do you recognize and not just be despondent that we live in an age in which so many people really have subscribed to this noxious, noxious view of our history, our society, of equality, of democracy? How do you personally reconcile with that? I have a tr- trouble doing it myself. Um, how do you think that through? Uh, drank lots of bourbon. Um, so. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I, you know, I, I used to somewhat soothe myself by saying he didn't win the popular vote the first time. Uh, but even not winning the popular vote, he won, as you said, tens of millions of votes. And the fact that it's, you know, this is the lead contender um, in the in the Republican Party right now. The fact that um, the polling shows he's neck and neck with Joe Biden. Um, it is, you know, it's one of those things where I, I tell my students, you know, things cannot be surprising to you and can still be utterly devastating. And that's Correct. really how I process this. I'm, I'm not shocked. This is this is America. I spend all of my time uh, in the contradictions and hypocrisy of, mm-hmm. of this country, you know, studying that. Um, and yet this country can still break your heart, even even exactly. when you, you know it for its true self. And I, I want to believe that we are better than that. Um, but I think it's naive to assume that we are because right. there have been so many times in history where we've proven that we're not. We're, we have the potential to be better than that, but it shouldn't even right. be close, right? It, it shouldn't even right. be close. Um, and it's, it's just very frightening. So I... I feel grateful that at least I work the type of job where I, I feel like I can try to do something about it, that I right. don't feel completely helpless to watch this situation unfold. Um, but I don't know what we do with the country we have, honestly. Right, right. Well, let me shift a bit to journalism. Um, my Listeners um, and my readers certainly know that uh, I've had it up to here um, with much of the corporate media in this feigned neutrality and this both sides ism in this failure to see what is in front of their faces um, and the failure to rise to the occasion in defense of democracy. But you at Howard University are doing something about it. Um, tell me about what this effort is and what you hope to accomplish. Yes, we absolutely share uh, that anger, that frustration, that disappointment with our profession. Um, We are the firewall of democracy. And so if if we're the last safeguard and we fail, then democracy fails. Um, And so I really founded the Center for Journalism and Democracy in that vein, feeling that um, our profession was not rising to the occasion that this this belief in um, neutrality or what they call objectivity, which of course is not objectivity, that what it actually means is that we are not reporting the truth, that Correct. it obscures the truth, um, that it doesn't educate the public. It doesn't raise the alarm with the public and the public counts on us. That That is why we exist. We don't get into this to be stenographers. Um, yes. 
So we're trying, yes, we, so we're founded to say, um, democracy requires a free press (laughs) and a free press requires democracy. So we cannot be neutral on this thing. And whatever norms we thought we established prior to Trump, which of course I thought were failing then, um, certainly cannot utilize them now. Uh, Trump is a master at exploiting those journalistic norms. And um, we are not learning and have not learned enough. I, I, I certainly thought after the last election, we would have to have learned, but we have it. So no. we um, just in, in a, a little more than a month, we, we're holding a democracy summit. Our, um, it's our second one at Howard and our summit is really geared towards journalists to say, Let's bring in democracy experts, historians, political scientists, people who can give us the proper context to understand what we're seeing right now and give us the charge that we cannot be neutral in an eroding democracy. Um, And that so often what passes is as objectivity um, is really a false balance that's not truthful and uh, promotes power over truth. So Uh, That's what I'm trying to do is really um, help educate and bully (laughs) the profession. Yes, Yes, Uh, exactly. Waking up and and doing our jobs. And I've never wanted to cover politics. I I, I imagine like to me, that's like the worst job in the world. Um, And I I don't pretend to know how difficult it is in this environment to cover politics. I'm sure uh, it is extremely challenging. Um, but I'm also sure that we can and must be much better. And we have to, you know, Jen, we can be a very arrogant profession. We, we yes. don't like to take critique. Um, we, we don't like to, to, to self-evaluate. If, if someone calls out our coverage or critiques our coverage, we immediately get defensive and we immediately go into justifying it. And what I'm saying is all of us just need to, to take a step back and, and honestly critique our own failures and listen to the critique from the outside and stop being such an arrogant profession because the stakes are too high and our responsibility is too great. Boy, is that the case. You know, I do a lot of now media criticism and I have very well-known people, you know, on cable news shows, hosting cable news shows. And when I write this stuff, they are furious with me. Yes. Why would you say this? Don't you understand? Ba, 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 ba. And so I think you're right. This defensiveness is really kind of bracing for people whose job it is supposedly to hold other people accountable for exactly. their behavior. So it does um, kind of boggle the mind. Um, I'm looking forward to that conference because I have signed up to go. I um, <laughs> but one of the things that I find so interesting about your project is that you draw on the history of the Black press in America. Um, and, you know, those great institutions, the Chicago Defender, the, you know, the great papers that, um, not only covered the civil rights movement, but simply covered the black community throughout its history when no one else was. Talk to me a little bit about how those institutions and the way they operated can help inform what you're doing and what journalism should be doing. Yes. So we, um, 
so I've never worked uh, for the black press, but I've, off, I've always considered myself a journalist in the tradition of the black press, um, which right. often made it hard for me early in my career um, because I didn't pretend that objectivity was something that I, um, that I espoused or that I um, sought to be. And, and that was the black press. And really that was, that was the American press, frankly. This idea of, of an objective press is, is actually quite recent. Um, right. There right. used to be, you know, the, the New York Times was not, was not started as a neutral paper. It was a, it was a Republican leaning newspaper um, that didn't want the expansion of slavery, um, that there was long an understanding that newspapers had a point of view. Uh, and then in the last 60 years or so, this idea that newspapers should be objective and neutral has really taken hold. But the black press could never pretend neutrality. Right. The black press was reporting from a country that first uh, enslaved 90 percent of black people um, and then um, didn't grant legal rights, legal protection, citizenship. So the black press has always had, I think, a particular clarity about um, what the United States professed to be and what the United States actually was. And I think there are lessons in that. So we like to believe as journalists that we have an innate skepticism of power, but too often our report just reflects and gives deference to power. You know, you, you know, that old adage in, in journalism 101, if your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? That we're supposed to be skeptical, but too frequently we're not. And too frequently um, we, we are enamored by power and, and we, are deferential to power. Well, the black press existed in opposition to power uh, from the beginning. And so I think when we look at that tradition, uh, that um, ability to to see the United States with clarity, uh, to understand that the United States government, its institutions can and will fail uh, its people, that uh, we can have the same type of, of corruption that any other nation can have. Um, that's what we need right now. But also the thing that we need from the Black press um, is a pro-democracy, pro-equality, uh, pro-rights mandate. So not covering these things as if we don't care, right? As if we have no stakes, um, as if you have to pretend that um, we shouldn't want a more equal society, but saying actually that that is what the press should do, that we got into this I would hope profession because we want our society to be better. We want people to be treated justly. Um, and that has always been the model of uh, the black press. And I think that uh, the mainstream press has really gotten away from that in a way that is, that is harmful um, and a way that is a, a abdication of, of our professional duties. And to the point about this false sense of objectivity, I look back to the coverage of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It was not covered in most of the white press. It, it's phenomenal to me as I go back and read that it wasn't till very late in the game that national networks, national newspapers sent people. It was a revolution that was happening that was not being covered by the white yeah. press. So was that objective or was that... Um, a lie. And so I think sometimes the way we cut and dice um, and slice reality by what is not reported, what is left out, um, is 
problematic as well. Um, and, you know, it's interesting you talk about contextualization. And um, as we finish up our time, uh, I'd like to talk about that for just a minute. Americans like to think that we are so distinctive from every other society. But what we're going through now is an authoritarian movement that, as Ruth Ben-Jiat has documented, um, both historically and also contemporaneously around the world, has a certain game plan, has a certain set of behaviors, has a certain context. And that is rarely, if ever, reported. The comparison of Donald Trump to Pinochet is not something you see in the mainstream press, even though his techniques may be about that. Yes. So it's kind of a long way of saying, in your program, it also, I think, is asking more of journalists that they understand a bigger historical context. They can't just cover what's in front of them. They have to know the entire frame. Um, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about um, kind of giving them a context in which they can explain this in a meaningful way so that it's not just about Donald Trump? This is about right-wing fascism. Um, we've seen yeah. it before. Yes, except you you won't see that word, right? Yes. You won't see the word yes. fascism used. You won't see authoritarian or autocratic use, uh, though we freely use that um, when assessing other government and other uh, far right. right movements across the world. So again, um, what we're saying is objective is not because when you won't call a thing a thing because you think it makes you look um, biased or you're uncomfortable with it, that's not objective. So what the reason I, I even uh, conceived of holding this summit was to say part of this is, I think, um, journalists don't just American journalists don't just don't understand how to assess what is happening in the United States. And so they need to be introduced to experts who can say, you know, here's a checklist of things that we see uh, when we're beginning to see an autocracy or fascism. This is the this is the checklist. And this is what we're seeing in the United States. I think you have to break it down just that simplistically. So, you know, the authors of How Democracies Die, which to me is like, that's the the thin book that I try to get everyone to read because I'm like, yep. it won't take you long to read it. It's written for the common reader and it becomes so clear. Um, so part of that is you have to have an understanding of the history, but folks are busy. And they're trying to just keep up with all of the, 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 the news that's breaking on their beats. So maybe they don't have time to read all of this history. We can give them a bit of a primer and hopefully pique their interest um, to, because sometimes all, all you need is two paragraphs of context. You don't have to write entire articles on this, but you do need to have the context. Um, so we're trying to give that context and say, yes, it's the United States. But this matches the patterns of these authoritarian regimes all over the world and that there are a checklist of things that you can look at. Um, here's also the history. So, you know, right after January 6th, I can't tell you how many times I saw in the news people saying nothing like this has ever happened in America before. That would be laughable 
if these weren't the people who were shaping public perception about how to think about this. Of course, this has happened. It's happened. It happened again and again after Reconstruction, where democratically elected biracial governments were over, literally overthrown. There was an actual coup in Wilmington, North Carolina. So you realize that people just don't have the history, and yet they have so much power to shape our understanding of what we're seeing. Um, And the second thing that we're trying to do, and that is required, is courage. Courage to call the thing the thing. Courage to fight with your editor and say, no, we're not going to, we're going to use fascists because that's what the experts are saying we're seeing. We're going to call this what it is and compare it to what's happening in Hungary because that's what the experts are saying. And if you just objectively look at what's happening, that's what it is. But that requires courage on behalf of the reporter, the editor, and the institution to then be able to uh, stand up to the criticism. Um, Because what, as you know, there's such a fear that news uh, mainstream media is is seen as biased for the the left, right? That we overcorrect when we you can't have balance in a completely unbalanced political system. We have one right. political party that is not playing by any of the rules. The coverage must reflect that. And if people say that is uh, uh, biased, you can back it up because it's actually what is happening. So we we need that context, that understanding, and we need courage. Um, those are the two things I think that are required right now. Well, I wish that every newsroom in America could attend your conference <laughs> and perhaps hope you will. <laughs> you know, this is such a dire need. And um, once again, Black Americans, and specifically a woman um, <laughs> who is an African American, are teaching Americans about democracy. And that has always been the case. We've always had to learn um, that people who love this country more than anything else want it to be more democratic, that this is an act of patriotism, of deep love of country, that you want it to live up to its expectations. And that came through so clearly in the Hulu project, that this notion that this is unpatriotic or we hate America is diametrically wrong. Um, So I hope what you are teaching becomes the mainstream um, required uh, education. I've always thought that the first way to improve journalism would be to get rid of all the existing journalism schools, which teach all this kind of Tommy rot. Um, But um, perhaps they can get um, a wider perspective and more context. So good luck with that. Um, I look forward to seeing uh, it next month. It's November 14th uh, at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Nicole, for all that you do. And thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for your voice in these times. And that was Nicole Hannah-Jones. She did not disappoint. And in some respects, when she speaks about the mainstream media, when she speaks about white nationalism, it seems so self-evident. It is right before our eyes. And yet it's so difficult for many people to grapple with these truths that she is explaining. It is so difficult to change institutionally the way newspapers operate. And there is always a way of putting off the reckoning. Media 
took a lot of guff, rightly so, for having failed to really see the danger of Donald Trump. So they enlisted squads of reporters to be on the democracy beat. The problem with that is they made democracy a discrete object as opposed to looking through the screen, the prism of democracy, to understand who is supporting it, who is obstructing it, who is destroying it. And as Nicole said, when you lack any framework, either historical or um, theoretical, you wind up simply amplifying the lies. You wind up giving credence to the people who are anti-government, anti-democracy, anti-truth. The job of journalists, as some of us are fond of saying, is not to write down the quote of one side that says, oh, the sky is blue. And then you run over to the other side and the other side says, well, the sky is plaid and polka dotted. Your job is not to quote both of them. It's to open the damn window and look outside and say, what color is the sky? And then to say, one side is lying about what color the sky is. And that fundamental change in perspective from simply stenography, when you give equal weight to both sides, to truth-telling, and then holding the liars accountable, sometimes it seems like we're pushing a boulder up a hill to get that kind of recognition. So it is my fond hope, my wish, my prayer that the sort of journalism that Nicole Hannah-Jones is talking about does not stay in academia, that it becomes the new standard, the new guideposts for how journalists should behave. Because without it, we have seen what happens. They simply become tools of the authoritarians. They become part of the propaganda machine. They become actively unhelpful in defending democracy because they normalize it, they make it seem like no big deal, and they convince too many voters that their choice of an authoritarian racist party is fine. It's just a different point of view. Two parties, two ideologies, you want to choose this one, you want to choose that one. So in a sense, it doesn't hold the American people accountable for our choices. And that's a problem. So I think Candor, courage, as she puts it, and context um, would be wonderful additions to our mainstream media, which we currently do not have. So if you like this program, please tell your friends. They can listen and follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. <laughs>